0: Bible or a smartphone, some device, you'll be looking at the Scripture with us this morning. We'll be at the end of Ecclesiastes 1, working our way into Ecclesiastes 2. If you're turning in Scripture, Ecclesiastes, you get to um, Proverbs and Psalms. Go to the right. If you get to Isaiah, go just a little bit to the left. It's nestled in there in between them. Um, So, listen, we started Ecclesiastes last week. Um, if you haven't been with us much, we do kind of tend to preach through books of scripture chapter by chapter. Um, Ecclesiastes is a little bit unique in that it's Old Testament wisdom literature. Wisdom literature is not something that we have a lot of um modern experience with. It it's something that we have to work a little harder to to grasp and to glean and to understand. And so um Next week, or sorry, it might be helpful if you weren't here last week um, to listen to the introduction sermon. The introductory sermon just kind of lays a little bit of groundwork. We'll try to hit on some of that week in and week out, um, but it's one that it might be beneficial to go back and, and listen to. Um, just a couple of, of pieces as we recap. One is Proverbs kind of lays out the rule of life, like if it's the norms, the standards, the expectations. Ecclesiastes comes in and fills in the gaps and says, Hey, here's the exceptions. When life doesn't go as planned, Ecclesiastes says, I told you, right? Like, those things still happen. We live in a broken and fallen world. Um, a couple of phrases that we will see often in Ecclesiastes, one is this, is the idea of, of vapor or vanity. And, and what the author of Ecclesiastes, this anonymous book, what he's trying to say is it's not that life is without meaning entirely, it's that it's just really hard to grasp. It's like a flame or a smoke or a breath. You you can see it, you can see a semblance of it, but you can't grab hold of it. It's difficult as we pursue it. You see, the, the phrase under the sun that we'll see often in Ecclesiastes basically is, is saying in this this day and age, in these days, right? not in heaven, under the sun, in this life, in, in the created order that we have, in these days, it's kind of laying out a a pre-eternity and post-eternity dichotomy. And then ultimately, the perspective of, of Ecclesiastes is this, is he's going to take on kind of the character of, of someone who would not deny the existence of God, but if you were simply observing the natural world around you and making observations on what you can see and taste and touch and feel and know, how would someone maneuver through life, Right? they're not denying a Creator, but if they're not walking intimately with the Lord. And so this book um, wrestles with a lot of hard things that we see in our, in our own experience, in the culture around us, as people want to, um, to dismantle and pull things apart. But it's going to ask the question of, how do we maneuver through life, right? Knowing that there is going to be an end of that life. And so the question... I want us to start with this morning is this, is, is what satisfies us, right? Like this morning, what, what, satis, what satisfies you? And, and one of the interesting things we're going to have to do in Ecclesiastes is we will look at it in pieces over the week in multiple sermons, but really Ecclesiastes need to be, it needs to be seen both in peace and as a whole. And so there's a part of it that we will be left wanting a little bit week in and week out. Um, until we have worked our way through the whole book. Asking the question of what, what satisfies you is particularly poignant during the, the Christmas season, right? As you have kids or grandkids or those around you that you would be looking at going, hey, what what are you asking for for Christmas, right? That's a question that everybody's kids get asked this time of year. Or maybe you go back to your own childhood, right? In that first time, right, where you really remember like, not just I want something because I want presents, but I want it. Like there's this, like you're willing to give up future Christmases. You don't really mean that, right? But you make that promise, right? That, that thing, what, what do I have to do to get it? Whether it was right a bike, whether that was um, uh, maybe your first gun, right? Like some item that you felt like, I'm probably not quite should be getting this, but there's a chance. And I desperately am longing for it. I want it. I feel like I'll do anything for it. And then you got it. Right? Like maybe you actually got it. And today it's a good memory. But whatever it was did not satisfy for long. Right? That that it created a, a desire in you, right, to continue to pursue that feeling, right? Like you liked the feeling of getting it, of, of finally having it. But ultimately what Ecclesiastes will tell us this morning is it probably has put you on one of two paths. One, it made you a cynic. Like, well, nothing satisfies me, right? Nothing matters, right? And you, you fit in line with Ecclesiastes. Or it puts you on a path of, um, I just want to pursue that the, the, the emotion of, of, of obtaining something, and there is pleasure, there is satisfaction, it's fleeting, so I'll have to do it again, and I'm just willing to do that over and over and over again, and you haven't, for whatever reason, been exhausted by that yet. Or maybe, for a handful of you, there was this liberating sense of like, oh, that was devastating, it didn't satisfy me at all. Okay. And you actually saw it as the grace that it was, that things aren't going to satisfy you. And you, maybe you've learned that lesson, and so there was some, some freedom in that, and a grace in it, even though it was a bitter letdown, that it became both of those things. So we're going to pick up this morning um, in verse twelve of chapter one with just this kind of question of what satisfies, or what is it that I this morning, if you could snap your fingers in a different, like a different amount of money, a different relationship, a different item, a different circumstance, a different locale, a different feeling, the the, the return of something, if you can make it happen. What do you believe would satisfy you this morning? Let's pick up in chapter 1, verse 12. I, the preacher, have been king over Israel and Jerusalem, and I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It's an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I've seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and striving after wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me. And my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And I applied my heart to know wisdom, and to know madness and folly. And I perceive that this also is but a striving after wind. For in much wisdom is much vexation. And he who increases knowledge increases Sorrow. So, what, what we have here, we're going to stop momentarily, is kind of this intro that we, we had the author last week um, in the first 11 verses kind of laid out hey, here's what's going to happen in Ecclesiastes. This morning, we're introduced to the preacher or the teacher, whatever you want to call him, who we, we now kind of have an opportunity to just see his journal laid open. Right? And so, you're going to see his thoughts and his ramblings. You're going to see him uh, make uh, promises of what, what is going to come, and then he proves it. You'll see some Proverbs sprinkled in. We see that in verse 15 and verse 18. And and we just kind of see him struggle. He doesn't hold back any pretense of making sure that you think well of him. He's just very raw and honest here. So he, he begins by saying, listen, I want, to, I want to find out what will satisfy me. And I have resources at hand. I have wisdom. I have knowledge. I have money. Right, I'm going to go after this and see if I can find in this life what it is that would satisfy me. And he goes ahead and just kind of tells you the answer's not great. Right, Verse 14, I've seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and striving after the wind. Verse 15, he leads with a proverb, What is crooked cannot be made straight. What is lacking cannot be counted. What he's saying here is the world is broken. Right, like We know that it was created um, in, in perfect harmony with God and with man, and yet here he's saying, but it is seemingly irrevocably broken, disjointed. Like, we can't straighten it. We can see that it's broken. We can see that it's not right, but we can't fix it. We can't make there be more. We can't fix what is going on. And, and so he is going to just kind of lead us with this. We have in us a longing for God, and a longing for something that is right and perfect, and yet this world is broken. We can't seem to fix it. Church, this morning, right, The kind of the invitation that he's going to give us is, listen, you've got one shot at this life, right? And, and we live in a world where it's like, hey, give me one more try. Give me one more shot. Let me redo that. But life doesn't give us that opportunity. And so he's going to say, are you, going to, are you willing to learn from me, or are you going to have to learn the hard way? Are you going to have to do it yourself? And if you have multiple children, you probably have some that are willing to learn from others and some that it doesn't matter how much you keep them from the hard way. They're going to learn the hard way, right? That's just the way they're going to do it. Some of you are the ones that have to learn it the hard way. And as he tells us in 15, what is crooked cannot be made straight. He, he's reminding us, you can see things are, are, are jacked or broken, but you're not going to understand all the reasons why. And things are going to happen in this life that you will not get an explanation for on this side of heaven. Right? That you're just not. You're going to say things like, what is crooked cannot be made straight. What is lacking cannot be counted. Like, there's just not a clear-cut answer or explanation. If you've seen someone come back from war, right, and they, they come back and they're like, I've seen things. I know things. I've experienced things, and they have a hard time readjusting. Someone who's gone and, and experienced maybe in the medical field or a missionary field, right? Extreme poverty or lack, right? And they come back. We see this in verse 18: For in much wisdom is much vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. Basically, saying ignorance is bliss, right? Like is, is what the king is saying here. He's like, when you know more it increases your awareness of how much is broken and wrong. And yet we pursue wisdom as though it will fix things. Right? So, let's pick up in verse 1. He's going to begin his pursuit of looking for things to satisfy. I said in my heart, Come now, I will test you with pleasure. He's telling himself, Whatever you want, you're going to get it. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this also is vanity... I said of laughter, it is mad, and of pleasure, what use is it? I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom, how to lay hold on folly so I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. I made great works, I built houses, I planted vineyards for myself, I made myself gardens and parks and planted them in all kinds of fruit trees. and my wisdom remained with me. And whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for all my toil. Then I considered all that my hands had done, and the toil I had expanded in doing it. And behold, all was vanity and a striving after wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. He just begins to list out. And he says, listen, it's almost like a hypothesis. Like, I'm going to just go and experience and do it. And if I want to do it, I'm going to do it. And I have the means to do it. And so that I can figure out if there's anything that will actually fill this hole inside of me. And so we see him begin to just kind of work through. Verse 2, I said of laughter, right, that he looks for humor. Like, maybe, maybe it's in joy and in jokes and in humor, and, and we see that Proverbs also talks about laughter. This is Proverbs 14, 13. Even in laughter, the heart may ache, and the end of joy may be grief. Right? Like this reminder that, that we, you can laugh and also be grieving at the same time. That laughter doesn't fix our grief. And you can genuinely laugh and have joy and also be suffering and aching And hurting. We see also in Proverbs 26, verses um, 18 and 19. Like a madman who throws firebrands, arrows, and death is the man who deceives his neighbor and says, I'm only joking. Right? What what Proverbs and, and Ecclesiastes are saying is humor has its place and it brings about joy. Right. But in the right context, at the right time, with the right content. Timing matters, right? And we all know someone who's an escapist, right? Like everything's a joke. And it helps them avoid reality. That nothing is serious. Nothing is off limits for their joking. And and what it means is it actually ends up being like throwing like fire on someone, hurting someone because in every moment they have got nothing of Value or nothing of substance to say. It's simply a joke, and, and, and nothing's off limits to mock or to humiliate or to joke or to ridicule. So he's not saying that humor doesn't have its place, but he said it's mad. Like it, it, it has to have a place, and it's not the fix all for every situation and for every circumstance. He goes in verse 3 I search with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, like he seeks out alcohol. Going, okay, is there a way to handle my my need for pleasure with alcohol? He goes, I even had my heart still guiding me with wisdom. He's like, I didn't didn't completely lose control all the time. But it wasn't sufficient. In verse 4, I made great works. I built houses. I planted vineyards. I made gardens and parks. Like, this is a man with resources. He's not just going... I planted a rose bush. He's like, I changed the landscape. And I built architectural feats. And, oh, they need water? All right, let's, let's move water there. Right, like we had a small example of this, right, with Heboon with Pickens ran, right, where it's like, hey, I'm just going to make an oasis. Where, where it's not an oasis. With water and with trees and with buildings. And this is being done on even a grander scale. One of the things we love about kids is the wonder that they have, right? Like when they see something for the first time, right? And you're like, oh, yeah, like, it is incredible. I've lost that. That's awesome. And, and you'll, hear, you'll, you'll hear yourself telling kids, man, don't lose your wonder. And yet, we do. We lose our wonder. And And he's saying, "Listen, I did all of these tremendous things, and they're good. they were artistic: houses, vineyards, gardens, parks, fruit trees. Like I've done it. Eh. It, lost its, it lost its luster. He continues. "I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees, like nature itself isn't enough. You almost get the impression here that he's trying to recreate Eden. Right, that he's going in and saying, all the fruit trees, all the water, all, like, I want to recreate what we lost and what has been broken from the beginning. I want to fix it. And he's like, we're not capable of doing that. We're not able to create Eden on this side of the fall. It's not by our hands to be able to do that. In verses um, 7 and 8, he talks about stuff and money listen i had servants slaves they were born in my house i had great possessions of herds and flocks more than any who had been before me i gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces he's like i had the stuff not satisfied oh so maybe it's maybe it's it's physical pleasure right i had many concubines right at his service to do his bidding and whatever he wanted right we see that Solomon at one point had at least a thousand women between wives and concubines, right? He's like, my choice, whatever I want, it's before me. I have access to it. I don't, I can't just like long for it. I've made it happen, and it's here. Art and and music and beauty, like right. I have singers, men and women, a choir. Like, so you can imagine the day where he's just walking through his garden, right, looking at the fruit trees, picking off fruit, seeing the water, hearing people walk around, being they're just singing for His benefit. That's beautiful in what you're singing and what I'm seeing. I've done this and I've got more money. Like you can imagine all of it. And He's like, eh, it's alright. And maybe for those of us who have less than that, we're like, He's a fool. And yet we know that when we've got what our heart has desired, it's not been He's just done it on a greater, grander scale than I. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. My wisdom remained with me. Whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was the reward for all my toil. And then I considered it, and it was striving after win. I couldn't grab It wasn't sufficient. He had the the means and the resources to do it, and it wasn't enough. So this morning before us, we can say, okay, I don't think you did it right. I can do it better, and so we can run after the same path. Or we can begin to glean wisdom from this. All right, let's continue in verse 12. So, so, so he says, I've done this, so let me try something else. So I turned to consider wisdom and madness and folly, like, Is is there is there rule in the world? Um, Is it better to be crazy? For what can the man do who comes after the king? Only what's already been done. Then I saw that there is more gain in wisdom than in folly, and there's more gain in light than darkness. The wise man has eyes in his head; the fool walks in darkness. Yet I perceive that the same event happens to them. I said in my heart, What happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why have I been so wise? And I said in my heart that this also is vanity. For the wise, as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come all will have long been forgotten. How the wise dies just like the fool. So I hated life. Because what is done under the sun was grievous to me. For all is vanity and striving after wind. Like you can see him going, I've been wise, like I've done, I've done the thing, and I'm going to die. And the guy who's done nothing who's been a fool, he dies too. Like There's no like reward or prize here that I get that he doesn't get. And so we begin to see death enter the equation. And so he tells us, listen, wisdom is better than folly, folly foolishness. He says it is better. Right? There's more gain in verse 13 in wisdom than in folly. Just like we know there's more gain in light than in dark. He's like, okay, I'll give you that. It's better to be wise than to be a fool. But I'm still going to die. And so we see this great equalizer begin to enter. Death is coming. And my wisdom won't keep me from it. My pleasure won't keep me from it. My resources won't keep me from it. My knowledge won't keep me from it. And so we can bury our head in the sand and pretend like death isn't coming, but right this morning, even if we just say, "Hey, we're all gonna die," we're like, eh, but in a long time, right? Like we we quickly have the means of just kind of maneuvering away from that and going, "Ah, yeah, 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 yeah," but right? And and he's saying, I'm "Gonna die," and I have found nothing yet that satisfies me. He says, "Even the wise one, right, is going to be forgotten." Verse sixteen. For the wise, as the as the fool, there's no enduring remembrance. A couple weeks ago, um, we had four generations of my family in a room. There was 95 years separating my youngest from my grandfather's older sister who's still alive. 95 years, which is incredible. And so as I was sitting there thinking, my grandfather, who's 95, still living, right? My kids, who are also alive and in the room, Know literally nothing about his dad, his mom, right? Like in four generations, right? Like they're sitting there going, "This is my great grandfather, grandfather," right? Like they'll have memories and thoughts, and I. But his dad, like someone that would have been so close in such an intimate relationship for him, right? They're like, okay, like no remembrance, none, and we can fool ourselves into believing. This moment in history is the most important moment that that it'll be different for us, but but what he's saying is this is there is no lasting remembrance. There is no lasting legacy. Eventually it just becomes a name or a word at best. You're not remembered. You're forgotten. Right? Think about the the big ranches in, in the Texas panhandle that have sold recently. Right? Have left families or like I, you can imagine as, as they were being worked a hundred years ago, no one was thinking, hey, at some point in the future, this won't even be in our family. right? At some point in the future, the founder of this ranch will be like an asterisk in a history book right? or a contract because someone else will own it and it will be forgotten. So the question for us is, do we live like we won't die? Or do we have an eye towards that? right? Because... Ecclesiastes is going to say there's going to be some wisdom in living towards this idea that the end is coming. Chapter 12 says you will stand before God and there will be judgment. So it should affect the way that we navigate through life. All right, he's going to to pursue one more thing here. Look at verse 18. After pleasure, after wisdom, he's going to pursue work. I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be wise or a fool. Yet he will be master of all which I toiled and use my wisdom under the sun. This is also vanity. So I turned about and I gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun. Because sometimes a person who is toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This is vanity and a great evil. What has a man from all the toil and striving of heart from which he toils beneath the sun? For all his days are a sort of sorrow are full of sorrow, and his work is a vexation. Even in the night his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. Right, like we're two chapters in, and I'm I'm glad y'all came back this week, right? Because I, right, there was like a legitimate concern of well if if it's vanity, I, I need to be there. Right. And, and we know that this is being written prior to Jesus. But, but the danger for us this morning would be if we run too quickly to Jesus in this, and we don't sit in the reality of this, and if we don't realize that this is what our, our, our coworkers and our neighbors and people in the world are, are sensing and feeling, then we can become disengaged right, from those who are asking really hard, big existential questions. Or even finding answers for ourselves. And so he says, listen, pleasure wasn't enough. Wisdom was not enough, because death is coming. And so he says, I just worked really hard. right?" And and, and so here you think, well, it's because he was a hedonist. Maybe he should have just been more moral. But here he does the right thing. He does what we would say is the right thing, and it's not also sufficient. By his hands he doesn't find the pleasure that he's longing for. So you can take this section of Scripture... And we've seen people respond very, very differently from it. Some will go, okay, I'm going to work and I'm going to pile up this big inheritance so that I can pass it on to my kids, so that I can pass it on to my grandkids and set up my family for for a long time. Generational changing wealth. And you'll see other people who are extremely wealthy say, oh, no, 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 no. Generational wealth is a bad thing because you didn't work for it. So you're going to become a horrible person. And so you'll see folks who will say, I'll pay for your college, and then all the money goes away is you have to you need to put in the energy and the effort. Right? And both of those ideas would kinda come from here of going, Well what's it matter? Like I worked really hard and I was really smart and I did a good job and someone else gets to enjoy it. And that guy might not even be a good dude. Right? He might not even be someone who will appreciate it. And you can imagine he just says this is a great evil. Like you can just hear the the discouragement and the vexation and the struggle here, you can see this idea at play in our society, especially in sports. And I'm not talking money. Right? You see a coach or a player win a championship in any sport, and immediately the question goes, well, what are you going to do next year? Right? There, there's, there are major sports programs, that they have like a 24-hour rule. Like after you win something, you can celebrate for 24 hours, then it's back to work. Like you've just poured your blood, sweat, tears, grime. Like you've lost. Like you've done all these things to win this thing, and you can't even enjoy it because the competition just continues, right? Maybe you feel this at work. What have you done for me lately, right? It's great that you did this last year, but you want to eat next week, right? So you better keep working, right? You still need a paycheck. This idea that it's never enough, it's never sufficient for all his days are. Of sorrow and his work is a vexation. Even in the night, his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. So, for you this morning, which of these things have you been seeking as a means of satisfaction? Is it pleasure? Is it something off that list up there, right, of laughter, alcohol, beauty, accomplishment, nature, music, money, stuff, sex? Like, is it something there? Is it wisdom? Has it been the effort of your hands and work? What is it? And maybe you're going, no, 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 not me. My, 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 my pursuit is Jesus. He's all that I need. He satisfies. And and people who would pursue something off these lists, they look silly. They look silly. But it, it, were you ever in a room as a kid in a classroom where the teacher gave um, an instruction that was different than the, the normal rhythm, right? So maybe you're taking an exam, and typically you would, you know, finish your exam, you'd walk over and put it in the basket, go back to your seat and be quiet. But in that moment, the teacher says, all right, this morning, when you finish your exam, flip your paper over and sit at, the ta- sit at your table quietly until everyone's done. So you hear this clearly, right? And you finish, and you do that, and then you notice someone else get up and they go and put their paper where you normally would. You're like, oh, you dummy. And then another person does it. And another person doesn't. And then you start to like second-guess yourself of like, did I miss here? Like, am, am I the one that's wrong? And then when you begin to realize you're in the minority, right? Even though you know what is right, you begin to mimic what someone else does. And it, as a third grader, it takes a lot of courage to be like, ah, no, I know I heard the teacher, right? And most kids are going to get up and do what everyone else does. Right, And we can remember moments like that, and we can laugh about moments like that, and we would say, we'll never do that as adults. And then we can pursue wealth and accomplishment and pleasure and all of these things going, I know that's not going to satisfy me, that Jesus will satisfy me. That won't. But everyone else is doing it. And then we just ease into it. Or we say, well, I'm going to stay over here on the edge of it, and then before you know it, you're full on pursuing these things. What you would have said would make you look silly, and now you're glad to do it because you don't want to be the one guy not doing it, the one woman not doing it. Yesterday I was at Tractor Supply, out in their little lot, and I was looking at something, and Janner and Jude were with me, and Janner goes, and, and it's like, hey, Dad, find me, and he goes and hides, literally with stuff waist high. Okay, It was only waist high. But he turns his back to me, and he covers his eyes, and he's like, find me, and he's giggling the whole time. Right? And I'm like, Well, oh, where Tanner? where are you? I can't see you, where are you? And he's just cracking up, right? Like, he can't see me. He can't see me. And Jude is kinda like, You're really weird, right? Like he's just kinda looking at me like, Y'all are both weird. Right? And and so there was there was this like silliness of it, of like you're not hiding, but you think you're hiding. Like you think you're doing something? When Carmen and I moved to Yemen, I, I tried to learn Arabic, and I tried to wear the clothes, and I tried to blend in as much as I can, and I wanted to be seen as an insider. But listen, I was six three and white, around a bunch of guys who were like five eight and not white. Like I wasn't, I wasn't blending in, and so I could either try really hard to blend in and fool myself and be like, "You can't see me, you can't see me," right? Where well, everyone else is going like, you're a fool. Or I can embrace the fact that that wasn't my home and that I was traveling through. And because of that, it allowed me to have some conversations and some interactions and just to embrace, this isn't it. This isn't it for me. This isn't it. Yeah, I know I don't belong. Let's talk about it. And let's enjoy the experience. First Peter 2 tells us that this isn't our home that we are traveling somewhere else, that this isn't it, that we are sojourners, aliens in this place on our way to heaven. And if we try to bury our heads in the sand and pursue pleasure in the way that the author of Ecclesiastes does, we will find ourselves also desperate and in our journal saying, there is no joy, there is no satisfaction, there is only vexation and trouble. But when we begin to see that this isn't our home and we aren't built for this place, it allows us right, to begin to see things for what they are. And listen to how He ends this. Look at verse 24. So there's nothing better for a person than he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his spoil. right? He comes back around. This also I saw is from the hand of God. For apart from Him, who can eat and who can have enjoyment? He says, listen, so eat and work and drink and enjoy it. Now listen, it's not going to be lasting. It's fleeting enjoyment. But just see it for what it is. It's from God and it's a good gift. And you can enjoy it. And if you're looking for it for eternal satisfaction, you will be sorely disappointed. But if you can just see it for what it is, good gifts from a good God who's creating a longing in you for more of Him and less of that, then it can just be what it is. And so we're entering a season where everything around us is saying, you need this to have a good Christmas. You need this experience. You need to create this situation. You need these things, right? But it And if we go there, then we wake up on the 26th and Christmas was what Christmas was. Or we can just let Christmas be what it is. A reminder that our heart is longing for something more. And this is pretty good too. It's just not lasting. It's just not sufficient. It's just not enough. So if death is inevitable, Ecclesiastes is going to call us into how do we enjoy what the world has to offer without seeking for it to satisfy Right? and live for something more permanent. We can either be devastated by this news this morning, or we can be liberated that these things don't satisfy. We can become a cynic, or we can just let them be what they are. And so the twin truths are this. We live in a broken world, and this broken world is not our home. Both of those things are true this morning. That there's going to be brokenness around us until we are with Jesus for all time. And so we can enjoy and be satisfied, and we can also know there's horror and horrible things going on. In that, we can live in a broken world and also not be alone, because His mercy is new every morning, and He is Emmanuel, God with us. And so whether your circumstances this morning are devastating and hard, He is faithful and He is with you, and He will see you through. And if your circumstances are glorious and joyful, and you want nothing more for them not to change, they're going to change. But Jesus is with you, and He's for you, and you're not alone, and His mercy will be new every morning. And so we become a people in Ecclesiastes who mourn and grieve at what we see, but not as those without hope. Right? Like that begins to make sense to us. The broken world, not our final place. And so, like Paul, we can have abundance and see that Jesus is sufficient, and we can have lack in Philippians 4 see that Jesus is sufficient. That's why he would write to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 15, 58, and say, you can labor, and your labor will not be in vain. He he contradicts Ecclesiastes, right? He says, if your labor is for the Lord. right, and Then you can begin to see that things aren't in vain, that there's meaning to them when they're given a God-focused view. And then we can begin, right as we go in this book, to be reminded that Jesus stepped into a broken world. And when He touched things, He restored them. When He touched sick people, health came. When He spoke life over death, life came. When He told the storm to be still, it was still. Like the raging, roaring, broken world that could not be straightened by us can be straightened by Jesus. And so listen, let's not hold one of those only. If we only hold that Jesus fixes everything, which is true, right? Here's who we become. This is where we're going to end. This is Proverbs 25. Verse 20. We can take a truth like this and become this guy. Whoever sings songs to a heavy heart is like the one who takes off a garment on a cold day and like vinegar on soda. Right? Right? He's saying, if you become the one that only wants to wield the truth, when someone is hurting, you hurt them. But it's true. And so we need to be able to sit in pain and discomfort and see. You're, you're right. It is a broken world that's not straight. But we know the one who makes it straight. And those twin truths are necessary for us to not lose hope and to not be a jerk. We need both of them. We are being invited in Ecclesiastes to call the world what it is and to see that Jesus is sufficient to navigate us through it. All right, we're gonna need the whole book, right? But that's where we're headed. Let's pray this morning. Jesus, thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you for heavy things, God, that 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 make us uncomfortable, that can make us squirm, and yet that they're needed so that we're not burying our heads in the sand. God, when we come to grips with the fact that you are faithful and sufficient, God, that we need you because you are the only one who will satisfy us. You are the bread that we need. You are the water that we need. God, and it was through your blood that was spilt and your body that was crushed that we have hope and joy and that we don't grieve and groan as those without hope this morning. God, would you speak and would you call? God, would we allow the things that that we're pursuing other than you to be bitter in our mouth? That so we'll be liberated from pursuing them. And God, and help us to enjoy the ordinary things of life because their grace is from you too. Lord, so we need you. In Jesus' name, amen.